As I sit here writing this essay, the 2020 U.S. presidential election has finally been called. Joe Biden is now officially president-elect and Kamala Harris, vice president-elect. 2020 has been a year in which we've lived through a lot of historic moments, but Biden will be only the second Catholic to hold the office of the president, and Harris will be the first woman, first black person, and first person of South Asian descent that the people have ever sent to the White House. This is a pretty big milestone. People often look to the past during critical moments such as this, looking for meaning and context or the scope through which to view the current events. And it really should surprise no one that the kind of navel-gazing of the last four years has led to some deep soul-searching as well, about the kind of world in which we want to live and how we want it to be run. So the great thinkers and writers and, yes, politicians of our day, of every day, continue to crib their inspiring speeches from the liner notes of history. And thus we find the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow of Macbeth on the lips of Lincoln, Reagan, and Clinton. Shakespeare was not the first writer to be political. In fact, it's hard to tell Shakespeare's own politics at all. Was he a dutiful Protestant or a secret Catholic? Did he truly support the reigning monarchs of the day, or was he simply a very good brown noser? Would he have allowed women to perform on stage if it wasn't verboten? How can a man of letters have illiterate daughters? But in not taking a firm stance, though even if he did, we'd never know, the man is a near-total mystery— we are in the unique position of being able to examine his works on their own, without the constraints of the typical authorial questions being thrust into the equation. We can speculate about Shakespeare's views on the political and social and economic matters of the day, and we can find contrasting opinions based on which characters or plays or plot points we cite. You can make arguments for just about anything using Shakespeare. He really did seem to write it all. So what to make of this? How does Shakespeare operate politically, and how can we use his works to inform our views of the world today? And maybe should we even bother? Since we started this podcast in 2016, in the run-up to another very different and yet eerily similar presidential election, a lot has happened. The rise of authoritarianism in the former Soviet bloc and indeed throughout the EU, Brexit, catastrophic environmental disasters caused by climate change, the rise of so-called fake news, the legitimization of conspiracy theories, political demagoguery run amok, the death of irony and satire... Okay, really, the entire Trump presidency, let's be honest. A global pandemic and the humanitarian health crisis that's followed, along with the near-total collapse of our economy. Well, the world felt a little simpler when we first plugged in our microphone. Back then, we took so much about our socio-political surroundings for granted. I don't think we can do that anymore, or at least not as much. But today, as we look back to four years ago and the start of our humble little endeavor, a podcast about Twin Peaks... We're also casting a long gaze back to the start of the modern Western world to learn a bit and study a bit, to find meaning and context and the scope through which we will view the events unfolding around us. Today on the Bix Pod, we're getting politically Shakespeare. Since brevity is the soul of wit, more of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. And I'm Aiden. And together we are the Bix. That's right. And uh, yeah, today we're talking about Shakespeare and politics. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, we're we're getting a little political. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've we've not really gotten too political on this podcast yet, have we? Surprisingly, surprisingly for for we're who we are, pretty political yeah. people. So yeah, in our in our off hours, yes. Um, but yeah, so taking a look at at all things political about Shakespeare. Aiden, mm-hmm. when was the first time that you read a Shakespearean play, a, a play written by Shakespeare, not a play written in the Shakespearean era? Yeah. Um, and said, "Wow, like this this ha- this resonates with the modern." Something that's happening in, in the modern day. Modern politics. I mean, yeah. definitely Julius Caesar last last yeah. episode obviously <laughs> was a very apro fit. Yeah. Um, but I think the the first one that really kind of struck me um, was probably uh, Macbeth and the sickness that uh, ensued. This was in high school when I okay. read this play, and I think my probably my grade eleven. Uh, English teacher really drew it out for us. But, you know, (laughs) saying that, like, when there's illness at the top of the uh, hierarchy of power, uh, it it, it can infect everything everything else down. And then I believe at that point, yes, George Bush was president. And so we all had a good chuckle about that. Um, And, yeah, so I think there's there's always uh, a few lessons to be learned uh, from the political uh, underpinnings of Shakespeare, um, but yeah, as as you go in, there's 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 some plays that feel more, some feel less. I think uh, definitely the uh, I want to call it like crowd baiting yeah. of the Henry the Fourth Part Two and playing with the crowds like in Julius Caesar. Yeah, uh, that that's that speaks to me on a on a level uh, as demagoguery has run amok as you as yeah. you said in your intro essay Lindsay. Yeah. so um yeah there's there's a lot there i think um what about you what, what was the first one that did you have one that sticks yeah, out yeah well i think um i mean yours is more overtly political like <laughs> like capital p politics yeah, 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 you know yeah. but i think you know in in the small intimate politics of which have become much larger politics. I, I think some of the cross-dressing and mm. and the the um, gender bending, yeah, but also gender roles and and stuff that you see yep. in a play like The Merchant of Venice, which has always been one of my favorites, yep. um, or Twelfth Night, yep. where I, I think that it has. And you know, I read those when I was in university, so starting to become a little bit more politically active and and much more um, forthright in my convictions. Yep. But um, it certainly struck me that here were these plays that were 400 years old that were challenging the way that I viewed gender construct, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And and realizing that um, I, I vividly remember our university Shakespeare prof um, talking about a production of the, mer- the Midsummer exactly Night's Dream with, with uh, um, the glowing vagina, <laughs> the glowing Titania's glowing vagina. How many vagina. times do you think we've mentioned that? Probably in this a podcast? lot. Probably Quite a, a lot. Few. And we haven't even gotten to that play yet. No, I know, and I don't. Oh no, no we, we did. Have. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, we must have mentioned about? it. Yeah, but we so. never watched it. I don't That's know. True. I don't know if it was ever filmed. I think it was yeah. an actual stage production. Yeah, but either way, I mean the 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 weaponization almost maybe of of sex. Um, that really stuck out to me. And yep. so I think that's something that, um, not that I'm saying Shakespeare was a progressive in any way, but there certainly are places that a progressive person can draw inspiration from Shakespeare's works. Oh, yeah. Let's say that. And we've talked about We've talked about that a lot. Times, so yes. it's definitely something that I've always thought, like Shakespeare is not something that you can read in a vacuum. It's not like, yeah. it's, this isn't, you know... 
I, I don't know. I don't think you can read anything in a vacuum. I think everybody has political. Yeah. There's context to everything. You know, you read the Lion, the Witch, yeah. and the Wardrobe. It's hard not to see that as a Christian allegory, right? Well, I didn't when I was 12. So well, yeah, but I that's the thing, right? Appreciated that extra context exactly. <laughs> but so yeah, I think it's it's just something when you do know that context or when you can maybe suss it out a little bit more. It's um, it makes it more enjoyable, and that's why I'm really looking forward to this episode because. Um, We've danced around the politics. I think we've talked about the politics with the history plays just because they're based on true historical political events that happened. But um, to talk about the other smaller intimate politics of of interrelationships between people and and, uh, gender roles and Mm -hmm. the hierarchy and the family, those are interesting things to me. And that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit today, Mm -hmm. along with the more overtly political stuff that... Uh, drew you in yeah so i guess to start we'll go back to kind of set the stage as you mentioned context is important so the context of shakespeare's uh shakespeare's world i guess is also important here yeah what was the what were the politics of the day that he was dealing with yeah um and we've mentioned it many times i mean uh we in our very first episode we gave kind of the high level political structure of the times it was you know, the end of feudalism yep. was kind of the high point. Um, people were moving off the land. Uh, urbanization was starting to take hold. There was merchants, mercantilism. There was uh, trade and trades in the cities. and a rising middle class. A start of a middle class. Time. Exactly. All these things were starting to play. And they were ch- fundamentally changing the social structure and with it the political structure. And um, it was no longer just pure feudalism of you know you have your lord who then reports to his lord and his lord reports to his lord and all the way to the king it didn't operate that way anymore um and that was that was a big shift uh for shakespeare's world and uh lindsay you'd mentioned right before we started recording this there was a great quote saying like in shakespeare's plays and in shakespeare's time uh politics and religion were really connected in under feudalism you, mm-hmm. the the king was handed uh was anointed by god consecrated to, yeah, yeah to lead his people um and it was always his people it was very rarely the queen um <laughs> but that was his role and it was it was handed down by the church and by god and again breaking up with the church of uh the catholic church obviously didn't help that protestantism uh spreading in central europe as well uh it starts questioning that and it starts break and when those barriers are already breaking down um you have for really the first time the start of a separate political system distinct from the religious political system that had been in place before that yeah and i think that's i mean england was always a little bit behind the continent when it came to the renaissance Mm -hmm. i mean it hit the english 50 to 100 years maybe after it really took off in in italy and and other places on the continent so um but it is interesting when it does happen in england it um it does spark something kind of unique like the protestant split the the anglican church which Mm -hmm. happened in in europe but this was like very different it was from the top down it wasn't you know martin luther nailing his 95 theses to the uh, Wittenberg door, but yeah. the church door, but it's the king saying, no, I don't like this. Yeah. And for very different selfish reasons too. Yeah. But, but that's something that, um, that the Renaissance kind of allowed for mm-hmm. was individual thought and individual creativity. And so, um, it's kind of a place where, yeah, the, the, the artistic and philosophical and educational blossoming, um, Shakespeare was very, you know, 
couple of generations removed from the start of that, you yeah. know? Yeah. So even if he wasn't, you know, standing up and saying, yes, I am a humanist and this is, yes, and these you know, are the ideals of the Renaissance, yes, you know, right? Like it was not didactic it that way. That way. Yeah. Um, he's still kind of the inheritor of the people who came before him. Mm-hmm. And I think um, just to go back to, to like the historical basis for that, the there were two waves of um, English humanism yeah. that kind of spring up. One of them is a more pedagogical humanism that starts in the universities and where they're translating, you know, the Greek texts into Latin, into English eventually. And that's what Shakespeare is eventually, he's taught it in Latin and Greek, I guess, of it. But that's where you get the the start of this um, Renaissance school system that the English are very proud of. Um, and that happens in like the early 15th century, mid 15th century, I guess. Mm-hmm. But then you get this artistic renaissance that happens a little bit later on with people like Sir Philip Sidney, Edmund Spencer, and Shakespeare, who really take the ideals of um, classical literature and the the classical world and start to play with it. Yes. Right. And create their own uh, ideas and thoughts and so on out of it. And yeah, you have the utopias and yeah, you have Shakespeare exactly. and you have Sir Francis Bacon doing his thing. Like there's all these. Sir so Thomas Elliot with the, the book named the governor, um, which was, that is, but okay. well, it, was, it was like a, <laughs> it was like Machiavelli's the prince, uh, but, yes, but okay. you know, like it was, a, it was like an advice guide to how to be a, a proper statesman. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, and, and, and then you have a queen who's sitting on the throne. Well, mm-hmm. also, um, Henry VIII kind of started it. He was a bit of a yeah. renaissance man. Himself, you know, he was very athletic. Yeah, was, he yeah. was a, a bit of a scholar. He wrote music. He he was, you know, a learned person, and, and his daughters were educated. They were princesses, of course, so they were Would entitled been, yeah. to that. But, I mean, Queen Elizabeth I spoke how many languages and, you know, fancied herself a prince of... Yeah. The highest caliber, right? Yeah. And that's something that that um, trickles down into the into the the people, into the the English. Well, it does it by those schools politics. and yeah, the, exactly. the university systems, and then you know the the more common works like Shakespeare's that can then be dispersed amongst the populace who can't read, which is again mm-hmm. like ninety six or whatever percentage of people could not read. There was right. very low literacy. Um so these ideas existed in kind of an academic sphere, in a political sphere, yeah. uh, and then in the artistic sphere. And that's where we get them. And that's where we kind of we have the easiest access to interpret them and deal with them and uh speak about them to this day. But there are connections back and forth between those two different worlds oh, yeah. in those spheres, Absolutely. right? So um, it's it's kind of nice actually to be able to cite Shakespeare because when we're talking about it here, you kind of know what we're talking about. Like everybody's, yeah. uh, again, especially if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably seen a few plays, at least you've read a, few, a couple in high school or university or whatever. Um, so it's easy to kind of interact. Oh yeah, I remember that thing, that line in Macbeth or Hamlet's, uh, you know, Polonius giving uh, Laertes advice about, right. you know, whatever. To like, thine own self, self be, be true. true. Yeah, like there's all these little elements that come across that have these humanistic mm-hmm. um, ideas embedded in them. Yeah. Uh, but they don't feel modern. They're not something that is inherently something you would view as a political statement today. There's no identity politics in right. Shakespeare. Right. Well, 
maybe we could look at Othello and stuff, <laughs> but you know, like there's, there's, it's not politics as we understand it, but it is, it was the politics of the day being right. expressed in the, in the artistic work. So when we talk about Shakespeare's humanism, it is important to note that, like we said, he doesn't come straight out and say, this is who I am. This is who I believe in. This is who I would vote for yeah. if voting were a thing. <laughs> um, but it, so his humanism is still quite profound. And I think the idea that um, he takes the things that are important to the Renaissance humanists, the the classics and um, this kind of holistic, human-centric view of the world and applies it to various um, contexts via his plays. So mm-hmm. whether it's um, a play set in classical antiquity or a retelling of events from 100 years earlier, yeah. there's a common thread through that of um, people questioning the ideas that they're being presented with, um, I guess just people grappling with ideas that are yeah. happening around them yeah. or that are being presented around them. So um, it's kind of yeah. that that was kind of central to to what sprang up at the end of the Middle Ages was this idea that you could question things. Yeah. You didn't have to accept your lot in life yeah. necessarily. You could run away from your manner and. I didn't know this, but if you stayed away for a year, you you were a free man now. A year and a day. If your if your lord didn't find you, you were no longer tied to the land, right? I didn't so, know that either. Yeah. That's so real? I mean, as yes, apparently. <laughs> so if you were a serf who like ran away and hid for a year and a day, and suddenly you have all this freedom, what are you going to do with that, right? Yeah. So the Renaissance, um, once it hits, once it arrives in England, really gives uh, uh, that ability for people to become merchants become cobblers become like learn a trade wives could learn trades people started acquiring mass wealth and Mm -hmm. and turning away from the church in in small part you know there was still religion was still very important but you didn't you weren't bogged down by it yeah so and and that was like that's reflected in in a lot of shakespeare's plays yeah, absolutely. Like, there's so much urbanization. I mean, we've talked about it again in multiple plays, but uh, this sense that, yeah, there's 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 something beyond the church, and the church is not the only power. Mm-hmm. Uh, the source of power is in the king, in the people, in uh, individuals. You know, you think of like Romeo and Juliet. Like, love is a powerful force that can bind families together, and so forth. Right? Like, there's yeah. just more of that. There's more room for that in in uh, the Shakespeare that we get access to. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. So I, I was just reading the Encyclopedia Britannica. For um, fun? For fun. Uh, wow. No, I was researched. I was doing research, Aiden. <laughs> okay. Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Britannica defines humanism as... <laughs> no, uh, there was an interesting quote that kind of um, pulls from this and, and kind of says it better than... Maybe we should have just led with this oh, instead of yeah. rambling on. But um, Shakespeare's plays reflect an inquiry into human character entirely in accord with the humanistic emphasis on the dignity of the emotions. And indeed, it may be said that his unprecedented use of language as a means of psychological revelation gave striking support to the humanistic contention that language was the heart of culture and the index of the soul. And I think that is really a summation of how important Shakespeare's role is in the the spread of early modern english um the primacy of that language Mm -hmm. and and how important it's become today um and also the continuation of the renaissance ideals of 
especially humanism. But the this this idea that language played a central role in that is, I think, very fitting. Yeah. Well, and it, and it's it's interesting because uh, language at the time was like like we've said and like you mentioned, you know, early modern English is taking form and Shakespeare's inventing eyeballs and what have you, right? right? And so elbows. like and elbows, right? <laughs> like so there's there's still this uh, this flux in the language. So the fact that Shakespeare gets to help solidify what mm-hmm. the English language looks like yeah. codifies a lot of the political and sociological, uh, sociological and, and ideological and all these th- yeah. these elements that that make up the English uh, language and national culture and all these elements. Yeah. Shakespeare is a big piece of that. Um, and yeah, yeah. In his uh, later plays, he also um, kind of upholds this this idea that art is a thing unto itself that can be practiced and can answer questions that religion or politics can't do and that in itself i think is a is quite a political Mm -hmm. statement and it's something that um we maybe deal with a little bit today when people ask why is art and you're like well you know art is art is whatever you want it to be art is a very subjective thing but the fact that we can even say that i think is is also um, attributable to not just shakespeare but the the renaissance humanists as well we're 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 the we're the inheritors of a lot of stuff from the renaissance i I think that goes without saying i think people would (laughs) at least in the western world right but um it's it's kind of cool to look back on that and say yeah you know there's there's like a moral artistry at play in Mm -hmm. a play like the winter's tale that um that really doesn't there's no political solution to the the problems in the winter's tale there's there's kind of there's no religious solution yeah, to it. Yeah. It's like we have to do what's right. And and you can kind of flex that and make it work for that individual situation. And it yeah. does. And it's yeah. it's one of the most beautiful plays. It is. And it's really Yeah, and it's it's very true that this is like there there's a there's a breaking off from uh, Catholic dogma as yeah. the only source of religious or as the only source of morality yep. to this is what's right without that catholic context necessarily yeah, exactly and it comes across in julius caesar and, and mark Antony and troilus and cresta these plays that don't have that christian context mm-hmm. um occasionally it interjects itself obviously because shakespeare can't help it um because that's the, what he believes in yeah. the world he grew up in but um yeah it, it, it it's a it's a thing to just be able to step beyond uh simple simplistic i would say catholic yeah. uh religious moralism to say like what is right here? What what is what are the moral questions of this these sets of characters, and where where are they going, and how does that interact with the politics of in within the play and within the court and within Shakespeare's world all all at once? It's well, and, and really fun, and he does that, uh, you know, in in across the collected works, he deals with these big themes, mm-hmm. these big disputes that had been confounding humanists for, you know, a century and a yeah. half already, like action versus contemplation. You know, you think of Hamlet, who does a lot of thinking <laughs> and not a lot of acting. Yeah. So what is what are the ramifications of that? Or theory versus practice, um, monarchy versus republic. Um, Just finish that one. <laughs> yeah. Human dignity versus human depravity. Yeah. Um, these are all big individualism versus... Uh, like the community how 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 do we navigate the world that has these absolutes on either side and we're somewhere in the middle how do we fix that how do we navigate that mm-hmm. um in a world that is rapidly expanding we've got you know explorers going out and quote unquote discovering new worlds yep. and so i mean you're charting a course for a future that is so wholly alien 
from where you've been. And Shakespeare is kind of um, he's writing the guidebook almost for for yeah. a, a certain um, artistic or creative or moral um, expression. Yeah, because that, right? that's where that's where I'm kind of headed. Is that this is really some of it's Shakespeare himself mm-hmm. dealing with these, and mm-hmm. some of this is Shakespeare as an expression of the sentiment that was already popped yeah, out exactly, his time, right? Exactly. And, and so it's it's really tough to tell, like, okay, was this Shakespeare's view? And this is what you've already mentioned. Like, is this yeah. what Shakespeare thought? Is this just the prevailing thought of the time? Uh, is Shakespeare just having this character express right. the prevailing attitude of the time, but the overall play doesn't seem to support that understanding right. of morality or whatever it is? Um, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, of uncertainty and ambiguity within that, but across the whole breadth of the collected works i'd say you get a pretty good sense of both shakespeare and uh the 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 understanding of of the layman around at that time i think the one we could probably speak most to is like what makes a good king because we've talked about that with every single history play uh a little bit with julius caesar and some of the other tragedies and stuff that we've looked at already too um you know what makes a what makes a good king we've we've kind of got a sense that of what that is and it kind of summarizes in henry v but there's all these other questions that um he raises about you know gender roles and all these other elements that are that are that are there in the plays politically um that yeah you get different perspectives on and sometimes and stuff and it's nice that we don't know exactly what he thought i think that's it's for the better yeah um because it does kind of feel like you know you could you could view it as shakespeare you know definitely espousing all of these contradictory views which makes it a very fascinating character study of yeah. the man himself but it's also kind of interesting if he was well-rounded enough to be able to say, well, this character is going to espouse this view that I heard at the pub last week, and this character is going to espouse the opposite view, and we're going to ha- we're going to see what happens when mm-hmm. I write this play. Um, even when he's rewriting classical stories or stories that have already been um, told 100,000 times, he's um, making them strikingly modern for the times and and i think that's part of the reason why yes shakespeare can feel very archaic because of the language and it's maybe a bit impenetrable at first but there's something that's very now about it Mm -hmm. maybe that's what makes it timeless in a way because we like i said we are the inheritors of this yeah this thought i think i think it is partially our I think I think that has a lot to do with it, the mm-hmm. fact that we speak English um, and it's imbued with all of these elements mm-hmm. uh, from Shakespeare on down the times. Um, as you were talking, Lindsay, I was thinking of uh, I'm reading a, a book by Edward Said. I, I hope that's how it's pronounced. Uh, he's uh, a post-colonial writer. I think he died in like 2004 or something like that. But it's uh, the book is Culture and uh, Imperialism or Imperialism and Culture. And he was talking about like how. Uh, colonialism happened and what the what the what were the cultural products that kind of supported right. uh the understanding of of imperialism and colonialism especially in the english context and like i think of something like uh the, the tempest. tempest yeah with caliban where yeah. it's like you know uh what's his name the old dude prospero, the magician, prospero thank you names <laughs> uh you know he's there to tame the the, the savage beast yes. you know uh it's already there and it's 15 it's like 16 10 or whenever that play was published you know like this is the ingrained attitude that's going to uh tumble on down to the scramble for africa and the middle east until 1950s exactly like exactly this is the this is the 
the ethos that that's going to permeate, you know, white supremacy mm-hmm. to this very day. Mm-hmm. And it's it's there. It's in Shakespeare. It's yeah. in, it's yeah. in like it, and it's it's not even it's so blatant and obvious that this was not just uh, the culture of uh, a specific time, but this is this is something that. Uh, Shakespeare's helping to cement as well. Yeah. Um, and that's, and then we continue to read about it today. And now, and now I think it's important. Thank you for bringing up the post-colonial view because it's important for us to dismantle this a little bit too, because what Shakespeare helped to create is something that we are actively trying to, to deconstruct now, Mm -hmm. which we need to deconstruct in order to move past the, blinding racism and sexism and prejudice of the times that in which we live that gave rise to the Trump administration in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there definitely were good things that have come out of the Shakespearean canon that we can definitely find um, uh, lessons for today that can help us, you know, figure out how to live today. Mm-hmm. But there were bad things too, yeah. and and recognizing both is Huger, kind yeah. of yeah no absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But I, I I guess I was a little bit too um, laudatory. Yeah, maybe. Well, no, I but but I, I I think like you can't help but loud it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's actually a verb uh, because it is. Uh, it's again, it's it's what we've inherited. It's it's within our you know <laughs> cultural DNA. Yeah, it's in our cultural DNA, and it's it's not going away in fact it probably can't because we all have eyebrows eyebrows <laughs> eyebrows eyeballs and elbows we've got all three thanks to shakespeare no, i don't and think shakespeare invented eyebrows probably not um but sure we can start that rumor <laughs> but you know like this is the this is the reality is that yeah. we we can't escape it just through the fact of how we speak to one another yeah. um there there's there's a cultural weight and inertia to what we bring in when we're talking and mm-hmm. when we do things and i always think back to the west wing and the the uh cartographers for social equality yep. and and how there's all these implicit biases and how we look at things mm-hmm. that are completely unthought of for by a large and, number and of people arbitrary in a lot exactly. in a lot of exactly cases. And, and it's not until you hear an outside voice say no that's actually really it doesn't have to be that way. yeah it, that's yeah. discriminatory or that's systematic there's a there's an oppressive factor to that that you might be completely blind to and you need that outside opinion to be able to explore those biases and stuff that's that's something that that's we're just starting to grapple with now. Yeah. I mean, it's really like post World War II that we really even started that process yeah. as you know decolonization kind of finally got underway. And, like, and we're really, really, really far away from any kind of meaningful change. I mean, yeah. we in Canada we have our Truth and Reconciliation Commission that came out. I don't know, yeah, almost years, yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, and uh, and I mean, we've accomplished a third of the the calls to action yeah. as a as a nation, and and some of those are being eroded <laughs> as we speak. As yeah. we speak. Yeah. Um, cough, cough, Alberta government. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's something that um, even with progressive leaders, you know, who champion these causes, they don't. I don't, well, they're I don't up against if, yeah, well, yeah. There's political pressure. Political pressures, yes, and to, and and yeah. they don't really know what they're doing or how to <laughs> navigate this themselves, and yeah. and they shouldn't have to do it alone. We need to we need to do this collectively. But there's so much. I mean, half of the United States of America, the the of the people who voted, voted for Trump still, yeah. and that that's a big 
slap in the face to everybody who who's believes in who's on, who's yeah. exactly yeah. who's trying to make this better. And so, I mean, there's so much work that's left to be done, and and you're you're really you're up against guys like Shakespeare who have been, you know, um, the building blocks of this whole system mm-hmm. are there yeah. and 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 that there's a lot of weight there yeah. i mean we're, we're putting it all on shakespeare is no shakespeare i know is part i, I of i'm metaphorically huge, yes, yes exactly yes, yes. <laughs> shakespeare is one of thousands of of creators we can throw the thinkers. bible in there too <laughs> yeah we can go all the way back if yeah you really the need. framers of the constitution <laughs> yes. i mean let's yeah, just exactly let's be real okay yep. Horse and curl. Do, do. Thou stool for a witch. I do, do, thou sudden witched lord. Thou hast no more brain than I have in mine elbows. So let's talk specifically about Shakespeare's plays. Mm -hmm. There are a number of... Um, themes, as we mentioned earlier, um, we're, we, I think there are six, am I counting right? Six themes we're going to kind of break down, mm-hmm. um, not in a great amount of detail. I don't think we want this to be a four hour long lecture, <laughs> but um, maybe to talk about these themes in, in a kind of a broader context, but point to the places in these plays where they appear. I think that's kind yeah. of the idea behind this yeah. segment of our podcast. Yeah, and, and these are kind of like the political theories and ideas and questions of Shakespeare's day as yeah. so they're 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 key to a lot of Shakespeare's plays and um the the first one that I think every high school student who's done Hamlet uh <laughs> especially and Macbeth uh will understand is is the need for order mm-hmm. um and it's it's very much uh the prevailing notion of what governments and the law remember yeah. think back to our Shakespeare in the law episode um it was it was the defining thing of whether or not uh politics is operating properly is is there order well and you have to think that um in our very first episode we talked about the um the hierarchies that mm-hmm. existed the the um great chain of being thank you the great chain of being for mm-hmm. once you had I, the information I, I didn't you. that's crazy the great chain of being <laughs> and how stepping outside of that order causes chaos yeah. and i mean this was baked into the the very structure of their society. And so when you get a play like Hamlet where um, fathers are killed and sons have to avenge their deaths and uncles are sleeping with mothers and um, it's... There, there's something rotten in the state. <laughs> very much so. Yeah. Um, I'm not as familiar with Troilus and Cressida, but that's another play where um, there's some breakdown of the yeah. social order. It, it's or been a while since I've read it too, but I, it's, it's more that... Uh, there's kind of like this sickness across okay. the the uh, the entire social structure, and it's it's kind of uh, expressed in Troilus and Cressida's love in a, in a way. It's right. kind of like an illegal, illicit, bad love because um, it's not sanctioned by anybody. It's just these two lovers. It's kind of like Romeo and Juliet, right. where there's this di- there's disorder because um, and the couple is ultimately punished because they yeah. pursue this thing outside of the bonds of of uh familial and patriarchal approval and stuff right so it, it's it's more kind of that but uh yeah. there, there's uh, choice and crest is kind of a weird play it's, yeah. it's a very kind of uh thematically uh focused play okay. in a lot of ways it's not a very interesting play but the themes are really well explored through the language okay we'll, we'll get there it's it's later on right Lindsay? no it's coming up oh it is okay so we'll get there sooner rather than later um but then yeah i mean the the histories yeah are, are probably really. the number one way, yeah. right especially you think of henry the sixth 
all of them. The Wars well, of the Roses. You, 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 yeah, the Wars of the Roses, and, and you take it back to Richard II, yeah. even, and you start to see how the usurpation of one king leads to the downfall of many yes. throughout and the, the disorder next, of the land. Exactly, yeah. like yeah. a complete um, upheaval in the, the social structure because the top of that hierarchy has been uh, dis. Dismembered, well, displaced and dismembered. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's that's probably the best example of of the lack. Of, and and then you get um, examples where where good governance, yeah, kind of comes into well, play. And, yeah, and you exactly. see in Henry V, Henry you have Fifth. great successes because there's a strong king at the top of the order, and he's he's got the law on his side, and and he's morality on his side too, yeah. which is very key to the whole uh, Henry V structure. I have order structure. and morality on my side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, Lindsay, we're going to have to... We're just gonna, link that We're going to link all the vines. We're going to send you guys a hot vine compilation <laughs> because uh, you can always use it. And and I think following out of that uh, very clearly is, is the next kind of one, which is related to disorder and that's regicide as yeah. as like the ultimate a specific kind of disorder yeah that, yeah that really takes root in the wars of the roses plays but also julius caesar macbeth hamlet they're all kind of um dealing with the decapitation of yeah. the the body politic yes right and how does that affect the rest of society and and, and it is a very um it's a very of the time question because again you have a queen who might not who has no kids. Yeah. So you you know this is this is a what's going to happen? It's a, the anxiety of, the time. Of, of that time is, exactly. is being expressed here. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and then well, actually, and it's interesting that under Macbeth, uh, which was written for James, obviously who had already kind of displaced that yeah. that fear, it's it's instead about um, you know. It, it's very much displaying the evils of 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 the, a poor decision. Whereas a lot of the history plays are a little more ambivalent. You know, you have the Richard II going back to that. Yeah. You know, tell te- sad tales of the death of kings or whatever. Yeah. Right. There, there's a much more uh, plaintive and questioning role right. about the role of the king. Uh, and I think the history's kind of needed that because the the this the order had been upturned. Yeah. And so you go back to that start, and you kind of have to put the question forward right yeah, like yeah. what what does this mean for the people that it's that it, where it started right yeah. how does this affect them whereas when you get to the end of that that how many plays seven yeah, eight, eight plays. whatever the yeah the two tetralogies yeah, i guess tetralogies. yeah yeah um it's it's made right yeah, yeah. Uh, but i mean it, yeah chronologically he's <laughs> writing them much earlier and yeah. so i mean the questions aren't maybe as as codified or you know when you get to a play like henry v i think that's where because that's the last of the plays that he wrote right yeah. so yeah. um for the for the tetralogy so i mean it's kind of a lot more philosophical in that sense yeah. because it's he's just matured as a writer and, and is dealing with them a little bit more yeah but you still have you know um correct me if i'm wrong we, you know the the fifth of fifth no, of November the gunpowder plot um, was Macbeth already written when that had happened? I can't remember the date now it just happened and I can't remember what year it was um, I think so I don't remember but I, I feel like there's was that I thought that was during Charles's reign no it was James no it was James of okay. course it was James Charles I don't remember. Yeah, Shakespeare was dead already when Charles was on the throne well, yeah that's what I'm saying I don't remember it having no to do with the gunpowder plot was James. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm my English they, history sucks. I know. Lindsay, you I'm obviously just saying. You know this. <laughs> they because they 
Okay, hold on. Oops, I need to spell Macbeth correctly. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I just looked it up, and the gunpowder gun plot was 1605. Macbeth was probably first performed around 1606. So yeah, okay. maybe you could draw a, a link between the two. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to that, I'm sure, when we talk about Macbeth. But, um, and we'll do better research, I promise. <laughs> um, but the anxiety about a Scottish king on the English throne and the unification of these two countries, the first in what became the United Kingdom, yeah. I think is kind of important because Macbeth, um, you know, the idea that uh, rightful kings in Scotland have been usurped. Macbeth was mm-hmm. a historical figure. Yeah. Um Shakespeare takes great liberties with that story, but you still have um, Banquo's sons who are going to beget kings. And and is that the line that James descends from? The implication certainly seems to be there. So it's it still has a very political goal in in its production, Mm -hmm. but it's still dealing with those bigger thematic um, questions of who deserves to be king and who is a good king, and and is it right to upend the social order um along with a whole host of other much more relevant questions about um well it's Macbeth, right (laughs) there's so much to talk about with Macbeth. it's true so yeah it is it is a unique regicidal play but still kind it fits very well with the rest of the regicidal plays and there are so many of them yes there are there really are i mean (laughs) julius caesar again we talked about that last week too it's it's just a very uh, it's a play very concerned about what happens with uh, who should have that power. Mm-hmm. Uh, should kings have the power? Uh, and is it whose responsibility is it to decide whether or not that's the person who right. should have the power? Right. Um, and the, the the next uh, topic was about the king generally. So, I mean, yeah. like that that is obviously the foremost political concern. But I think it's interesting to bring it back to the regicide uh, angle is is also like what what is the role of the nobility in dis- determining right. who can be king because you think of like Henry the Fourth um, or Henry the Sixth right no Henry the Fourth uh, when he dethrones Richard the Second yeah. right like there's there's a lot of concern about the nobility class in uh, England and again I think that's a very kind of of the time yeah. thing but it's it's kind of similar to like. You know, billionaires now who, you know, have so many resources at their disposal to anoint a president say, yes. or something like yes. that. You know, there's there's a huge class of super powerful people still in in the world today. And they have an outsized say on who gets to acquire power and, and so forth. I mean, and then when you, you discuss uh, when those whoever is the king yes. is is obviously the biggest one. I, I think the the plays that most exemplify that are. uh the Henry the Sixth ones because yeah. it was you know Henry the Sixth was a terrible king mm-hmm. everybody knew it even um, he knew it he, even he knew it you know but he was still king at times for parts of those plays um, and it, it just it made it interesting to one you know to examine um, you know what makes a good king again the topic we've discussed many times um, who who needs to kind of take that role uh, and what political. Uh, expressions are the king are the kings of the plays capable of that that are denied to the other characters and stuff well yeah and and henry the sixth is also important because when you talk about the people who have outsized 
influence. You've got Warwick and, and other figures yeah, exactly, who come into yeah. play to whoever he sides with. He's the kingmaker for a reason, yeah. right? So um, the nobility plays a huge role in the Wars of the Roses and in the history plays because um, who you've aligned with, uh, it it the, the nobles who supported the king or the nobles who supported the the enemy determined in large part who won and who lost. Mm-hmm. And so just in terms of the balance of power, you've got, you know, a huge, not, well, not huge, but a very large section of the English population anyway, who are wielding enormous power, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of interestingly contrasted with uh, another theme we're going to talk about in a minute, which is about the power of the people, I think. Mm-hmm. To um, maybe not influence the politics of the day, but um, well, I guess the influence and be influenced by the the, the politics and the the um, the whims of the people who are actually at the top, and uh, and that plays its own kind of its own role, um, which we'll talk about in a minute. Because I think the next thing we want to talk about here is um, ambition mm-hmm. and how unchecked ambition really isn't something that leads to good results good things yeah i can't think of a play that doesn't end poorly yes maybe henry the fifth i think there's an ambition there but it's not really unchecked i think he he feels he spends a lot of time trying to justify his ambition to conquer france yeah um yeah. And and he argues for it. I don't know if he if it's a winning argument, but he, you know you can kind of see where he's coming from. Whereas yeah. you have Macbeth, who um, has that what is it overleaping ambition? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is his fatal flaw, yeah. really. So it's interesting to see Shakespeare take that same theme and weave it through a bunch of different plays. We've got you know Henry the Sixth and um, the ambition of the various. No, no, yeah. nobility. York, the Yorkists. Yeah. yeah. Warwick. All yeah. of these people who are trying their best to navigate the this strange yeah, world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and then Henry VI himself, who has no ambition, ambition to yeah. govern and wants to just quit and be a shepherd. Um, you know, that's that's one way of, of dealing with it. But then you have um, King Lear and the ambition of Regan and Goneril mm-hmm. in... in trying to, you know, elbow out their younger sister and her lack of ambition. Yes. Um, which leads to the downfall of Lear, but, of, but and her, her eventual- and everything, well, right? Like it's Yeah, it's true. Actually I forgot she dies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um and, and Lear's interesting for the, the king too, because um, you know, he was a good king. Yes. And then when he abdicated power, but still tried to be king. I mean Lear's a Lear is quite a political play yeah, in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. That, and we haven't gotten there yet and it's been a couple of years since I've watched or read any of it. Mm-hmm. Um but it but it is a really interesting play that way because uh it's it's about political power yeah and where it resides and it resides in a king who if he's not king anymore but he's still alive right what, what is that role it's very similar to the henry the sixth when he's yes. when he's not king but he's still king uh there's a lot of there's a lot of that civil war strife kind of feel to that and and i think in a modern a modern take on that is you know having when when did pope benedict step down you yeah. have a living pope 
who's not pope anymore and then uh the actual pope now right or the questions of whether or not queen elizabeth ii is going to step down when she turns 95 this year um or next year and whether charles is going to step up right then you have a living monarch and and her son of the reigning monarch right so it's it is interesting to to kind of look at uh, if those things come to pass you know you can you can look at shakespeare and kind of see how um that is how those anxieties represented themselves in the time not to say that elizabeth is going to make her children choose which regions of england they're going to govern Although that I would pay that, to that, watch that, would, that, that show. That would be really good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the reinvigorate the monarchy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Hey, <laughs> this is reality TV. Keeping up with the Windsors. <laughs> I like it. I'd love Buckingham to see Palace. Charles just smack talking his his uh, younger siblings. That'd be yeah. that'd be great. Over juice in the morning. His bullet blender. You know. <laughs> it's okay. a royal bathroom. <laughs> yeah, 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 it writes itself. We really should just pitch that to them. Um, anyway, but yeah, and and uh, so you have the the ambition, and then I think I think a good counterpoint to that, and and the role of the king is the role of the governed and the crowd. Yeah, um, which is an interesting counterpoint because it comes up again and again. It came up in Julius Caesar. Yeah, uh, you think back to Henry the Sixth Part Two with the whole uh, Jack John James Cade. You never remember <laughs> Jack it's, Cade. It's Jack a J Cade, Cade rebellion. Um, <laughs> That whole situation, um, you know, the, the crowd can be, uh, you know, trusted, but also not. And it is ultimately, I think Shakespeare recognizes in a pre-Hobbesian kind of <laughs> Leviathan understanding of the power comes from the people. And I think that's something that's really interesting in that it's so obviously something Shakespeare's aware of, but he never, he can't really address it because ostensibly he's still in that great chain of being and the king is actually the one who holds the power um and the subjects are supposed to bow to it but there's this threat and i think that i think that's a very cogent expression again i'm probably using the wrong word uh but it is an expression of the fear that existed with the with this new post-feudal structure of like whoa whoa, whoa. if 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 the pope didn't make me king and you know therefore god made me king then where am i getting my power from right you know well but i don't think shakespeare yeah i i don't think he's a republican no no kind of stripe no but 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 the questions were being asked exactly he's expressing them here exactly and i think you know for for the time, you know, the, the late 1500s, early 1600s, the the Italian city-states that had been republics for 200 years already were, you know, in various states of war and strife. And mm-hmm. so, and, and then you have people very soon after this, um, Raleigh goes and, and, you know, colonizes Virginia. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you end up with with people leaving England to go set up their own colonies, governing themselves, yep. right? Pilgrims here, Puritans here, you know, tobacco companies here, yep. and they're all kind of ruling themselves. Yep. Not necessarily during Shakespeare's time, but you're right. These are the questions that are starting to be asked, and I don't think he knows what to do with that. Yeah. yet so that's why yeah. you see yeah. crowds that can be swayed either way julius caesar is a perfect perfect example because um the rhetorical skill of mark antony is all it takes is all it takes yeah. again a, a humanist ideal mm-hmm. right we're we're studying rhetoric we're going to learn how to how to sway a crowd we're going to learn how to speak to people to get them to do what we want them to do um 
not necessarily in a Machiavellian sense, but very uh, manipulative still mm-hmm. to, to, you know, not put too fine a point on it. I think um, it's it's there. And Shakespeare doesn't trust those crowds that can be so easily swayed. I think he's, yeah. we as we've, we've talked before, he doesn't seem to have a lot of respect for the groundlings even though they're the ones paying his salary. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I don't think it's an insult. I think it's just anxiety about, yeah. you know, it, it's very similar to the the very, very wealthy who complained about the Black Lives Matters protesters in, in the summer, this past summer, because there's just anxiety about what what they're going to do. Yeah, there's another... <laughs> I'll see if I can find the article. There was a... Uh, futurist or uh some tech person who was paid like an obscene amount of money like 50 grand for an hour's work kind of thing of these uh tech ceos and billionaires uh brought this person in to be like okay so when the end of the world comes how can i maintain 100 percent of my power uh with like security and you know guard dogs and all like how what's what what, what would my compound look like yeah exactly how do i build my compound to survive and it's and it's just it's an insane kind of like world that they they're prepping for Mm -hmm. um (laughs) and and the fact that they think they can survive it is 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 just a such hubris and uh such hatred of the people and a well, fear hatred of the crowd. And misunderstanding, yeah, yeah right yeah. of of the people that um y- that you're above. Yeah, I guess, yeah, right? exactly. Like they were talking about, like, well, how, okay, so I can put the shock collar on my security guard so that, and I, you know, if I'm dead, it'll go off and kill him within 24 hours or something like that. That that's foolproof, right? Like it was yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. that's how yeah. they're gonna make the the future world work. It's like by returning to like some like terrible. 3000 BC super slavery kind of situation right, right. with high tech features, you know, like mm-hmm. that's, that's where they, they kind of view uh, the, where they need to place the rest of the people. And it's just like, it's such a bizarre fascination of the powerful. Um, but I think it was, it was present in Shakespeare's time. So. Yeah. I'm obviously not to the same degree, yeah. but I think there's still, like I said, the anxiety is there Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, honestly, who can blame them? This is uncharted territory. Like we said, yeah, it's not them. something that anybody has ever dealt with, yeah. you know, with the, the masses wielding that much power within 50 years of, of yeah, Shakespeare's death, you yeah. have them overthrowing a king. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not it's not like it's unheard of for this to yeah. devolve into something well, really ugly. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, conservative arguments are like, well, if, you know, you're going to let, uh, like, let the gays marry, then what's next? They're going to be able to adopt? And you're like, yeah, that's exactly, yeah, you know, it's, yeah, like, exactly. it's like, it is kind of like uh, uh, a, a slippery slope fallacy right. but it's kind of like yeah but at the end it's just okay at the end of it yeah. but like you're right like the things are going to change and it's going to be different the thing. like it's it's the fear of the change is what <laughs> is, is being so present profound. here yeah, and exactly. and it but it's interesting because i don't think shakespeare agrees with with um the, the crowd necessarily but he still gives them voice yeah. and he still gives them the right to to say what they're going to say and there is a no. There's not really a judgment from within the play of those actions. It's just kind, kind of, of like when you think of Jack Cade's rebellion, um, the the nobility criticize the crowd, but we're not supposed to side with the nobility who who put know, down the crowd. We're not supposed to side with Brutus, who's you know 
putting down the crowd, changing their mind or whatever. Like it's not, it's not. Uh, maybe it, it is. It's interesting to talk about every yeah. time. Every I, We've had this discussion every single time. Yeah. There's been a play on this, on this topic. So yeah. go back and listen to those ones for more. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Thoughts, Cause I think it depends on the play <laughs> and how you read it. Um, but the, the last kind of high level topic to talk about here is, is kind of, ungoverned power so power that kind of exists outside of traditional government forms and also i threw in here Lindsay, just just no, for I a see little that. flavor um the abuse of power and yeah. i think the abuse of the po- the the power of politics uh is is interesting i'm thinking spe- specifically of measure for measure um with like the governor who comes in and again i've never actually read this play i've just read synopsis awesome so we're going to yeah, talk just, about it intelligently just, just, no not at all but we're going to talk about it. it quickly <laughs> uh you know it's it's all about you know if there's an unjust law uh, what's your obligation yeah, to follow right. it? And, and is it fair? Is it moral? Is it legal uh, within the higher realms? Yeah. And and that's that's another kind of question that, that Shakespeare does bring up occasionally. It's Merchant of Venice as well. Yeah. You know, it's it's like the pound of flesh. There's the spirit of the law and the letter of the law, and they're going to be in conflict. And so how do we navigate that? How do you that? navigate that? And, the Tempest and, also kind of deals with that a little bit too, yeah. with um, interestingly allowing for a bit of humanity to be given to um, the characters that are typically dehumanized and even are continually dehumanized after Shakespeare, um, there's an attempt was made, Yeah, I think. We pity Caliban a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think there's empathy for him to a certain extent. Um, But there's also, um, you know, Prospero's unchecked power wreaks havoc on the world around him and the people around him specifically miranda are are there to check that yeah for the first time or the last time because he eventually becomes a benevolent ruler and steps back right at the end of that famously yeah at the end of that play um puts down his staff and and walks away slash quill Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So it's kind of interesting that you you have a play that goes from absolute power, dictator, authoritarian kind of feel mm-hmm. to someone who's willing to walk away to abdicate power entirely um, within the span of a five act play. Yeah. It's it's an interesting one in that sense, because it, it does kind of show the maybe a, a, a more of a utopian view of of how power should be yeah maybe prospero is is the greatest king of them <laughs> i don't know it's it's interesting because i mean the tempest again it's the last play we got a while to wait unfortunately to talk about it um but it is it is a really interesting play that yeah. way because it does deal with something that's totally unlike the rest of his plays. There is mm-hmm. no community. There is no structure. There is no uh, higher power. No, it, com- um, it exists completely outside of even reality. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not set in any country even, that exists. Exactly. Even world. even the other romances like uh, Winter's Tale and stuff like that, there's there's still like power structures that exist that, that were sure. uh, contemporaneous to Shakespeare that he plays with and works with. Um, and and uh, power power sources that he's familiar with mm-hmm. um but yeah the tempest is just kind of on its own so i think it's i think there's like the legal dramas there's uh there's the tempest there's uh all these other instances where politics and power are kind of in more of a gray zone and more of an untested area outside of the traditional king and yeah. worries about regicide and all these things it's yeah. it's something different i think it's just a counterpoint to consider when you're yeah. when you're thinking about shakespeare 
All the world's a stage. And all the men and women merely players. So what can we learn from Shakespeare today? How can we apply the lessons from Shakespeare's plays to our modern world? Or can we? I mean, it, maybe it's it's worthwhile asking if, if it's even possible. Um, I think that whether we should or shouldn't, people will. Yeah. Um, just because, as we've said, it's it's part of our cultural DNA. So we're, we're going to use it as a touchstone for things that um that come up in Mm -hmm. our in our world today um you know issues like prejudice and and the idea of of um checking your privilege in in a in a weird way in a a very um woke way i guess is something that you see in um it romeo and juliet for example right if if that prejudice didn't exist between the Capulets and the Montagues, you don't have um, the death of these two teenagers, these two lovers, right? Mm. It's it's simplistic, but it's it's something that, you know, it's a lesson that Shakespeare could impart on us today. Yeah, and I think it's even present in some of the comedies even, like, like I think of uh, Love's Labor's Lost, where it's, speaking of like privilege especially mm-hmm. it's it's um this king has this privilege of of secluding himself but then he has other obligations that come in and and present themselves right. on him and it's it's kind of this dilemma of like well what should you devote yourself to and, right. and where uh what are your responsibilities you know we talked about that a little bit there too it's like yeah. if you're going to be a king you should do your kingly duties like well, marry this woman and, and henry so the fifth you know the entire yeah. story of of Hal's coming of age yeah um is an is an examination of privilege yeah. and how 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 privileged are you that you can put on the costume of the lower classes yeah. and go sleaze around in East Cheap. Yeah. Um, but when the shit hits fan, you have to rule. You, yeah. You're the king now, right? Yeah. So do you step up? Do you shrug off the the people that you once adored? Yeah. Or do you walk away and let somebody else deal with it? Yeah. Um, how do you how do you rectify that? And and even though I don't necessarily agree with all of the choices that Henry V makes, um, you know, murdering Bardolf was pretty harsh. <laughs> yeah, I I'll think. say so. Yeah, but it still is an example of yeah that that idea of of privilege and um, how you can be well how to be a good leader, yeah. a moral leader, right? Yeah. The idea of power corrupting. Yeah, I think this is probably the one that re- resonates the most yeah. throughout history because, you know, power crops and absolute power crops absolutely. Yes. I think that's right. Uh, so this is this is something that has just kind of proven true yeah. across history. And it's the fact that uh, it was a preoccupation of uh, Shakespeare's is, is kind of telling and the mm-hmm. fact that you have it in in especially julius caesar i think is the most yeah uh pressing one because it's it the play is so amb- ambivalent about whether or not uh julius caesar wants the power but the fact that he has the power is so yes. concerning to the other characters yeah. that it prompts them to murder him um when you have a, a play like macbeth where yeah. the character goes from having relatively little power yeah and and is a good servant to the one who is in power yeah and devolves into a kind of madness once he gets that power, whether because of some curse that yeah, you know, the witches have put on him or whatever. because of his wife yeah. or power itself. Um, it's a good uh, cautionary tale, I mm-hmm. think, for rulers who, you know, 
go are plucked from obscurity and make it to the upper echelons of power that um that this is something that could happen to you too yeah right and some leaders take that you know to to heart Mm -hmm. and you have good benevolent you know democratic leaders around the world and 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 then you have the ones that slide into authoritarianism very very quickly Mm -hmm. and uh and don't necessarily understand the lessons or have ever read Shakespeare. I'm well, talking about Trump. You know oh, I am. I thought you were talking about Putin, but, but yeah, I'll Putin that, too. Yeah. 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 Well, no, and it's and it's it's interesting that um, I think that's the, the reason this one resonates is again kind of our cultural heritage of you know right. we we live in republics and we we it's baked into us that giving all the power to a single person is yes. a bad move yes. because they will do bad things with it yes. even if they're trying to do good things with it. Yeah. Um, power should not be given absolutely to a, a single individual. Right. And that's just, that's something that's actually completely foreign to Shakespeare's idea of like an absolute yeah, king, right? Like the, that he was working with, but at the same time his plays do seem kind of to hold up that that fear and that that uncertainty and a, what a bad what makes a bad monarch, you know? Like uh, yeah. again Macbeth and, and Richard II. Exactly. All these Richard III. Yeah. Well, Richard III is <laughs> probably the most uh, apropos of the history ones for sure because he was a, he was a despot by yeah. by all measures by Shakespeare right so um yeah it's 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 interesting that that one kind of retains the most uh prescience in the modern day I'd say um the idea that uh we need to see the emperor without his clothes that mm-hmm. we need to see through the varnish and and understand I think um with the with the rise of political demagoguery, the the likes of which we've seen over the last ten years or so, um, we're seeing that a lot more and and um, in our world. But when you look at Shakespeare, there's precedent for it there too. That you can look at um, a play like Macbeth or Richard the Third, where there's no legitimacy to mm-hmm. the power that they hold, um, and ultimately they have no authority to do any of the things that they want to do and yeah. are and are um thrust out of power can you be yeah. thrust out of power well richard the second was so yeah I'd yeah say that's fair. right and, and yeah and that's a that's a good example because that is one where um he was king by all anointed rights uh and yet because he didn't have that authority right from his nobles and yeah. from the public at large then yeah. he uh, lost it and i think again that's one of the most more interesting parts of shakespeare is that he kind of has that push and pull between uh god giving power and the people right. having power and the nobility somewhere in the middle kind of choosing who actually gets it i think it's just really interesting what's mine is yours and what is yours is mine so gender as a social construct is yeah. also an interesting topic that comes up because this is still something that's very prevalent today. And, mm-hmm. and I think Shakespeare actually promotes a lot of discussion on this because um, just the role of, of how the theater was set up with yeah. all male actors cross-dressing on stage and then having those male actors playing women uh, cross-dressing to become men yeah. just inherently invites a lot of questions about like, okay, so what is this again? And why why is this so confusing? Because, um, yeah, it's, and it's prevalent in so many comedies and it's, it's mostly used for comedic effect, we have to be honest. But you think of uh, Portia delivering the speech in Merchant of Venice where mm-hmm. it's not for comedic effect it right. is it is there because she's a powerful woman able to dish it out yeah. exactly um it, it adds it really does question like okay so why can she not be a lawyer she obviously right. just was she right. lawyered the hell out of that scene um yeah it just prompts those kind of questions and it's still something that that uh 
obviously we're, we're dealing with to this well, day. resonates, right? And, yeah. and this is, again, not to say that Shakespeare was some kind of progressive who was forcing people to question why women couldn't be lawyers. Yeah. But by the very fact that these are present in the plays, you have to think that it's it's not all done for comedic effect, so there has to be some larger purpose for it. Um, well, larger questioning. Larger questioning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So so we're we're gonna put this to um, we're gonna we're gonna thought experiment this. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, I just turned thought experiment into a verb. You should. I absolutely. <laughs> um, so. When it is played for comedic effect in As You Like It or uh, Twelfth Night or um, The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 there to be funny, mm-hmm. but you can still have poignant questions. Yeah. Raised amidst that comedy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and um, even in in. It's not necessarily cross-dressing, but um, I think of Malvolio in Twelfth Night and how manipulated he can be by the clothes that he's wearing and, and um, his love for Mariah. No. Who is he in love with? I don't remember her name. I think uh, it is Mariah. Was it Mariah? Yeah. Okay. The, the, she's a housekeeper. or the Maria? Mariah. Mariah? Okay. Yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> His love for her is what enables her to manipulate him into walking around cross-guarded, like looking like a complete fop. Mm -hmm. And that invites all sorts of um, ridicule on a a character who we shouldn't feel sorry for, but we do. And and it's because of um, his outward expression of... Maybe not himself, but he's he his affection for someone is is being made manifest in the clothes that he's wearing. So it's not necessarily gender bending, but it is about a kind of expression of self that um, that even in and again it depends on how it's played. But even in a a scene like where Malvolio is then thrown in jail for yeah. you know his transgression, um, it can be played as oppression very very yeah, oh, yeah. very easily yeah. can be seen as oppression mm-hmm. and um and that's a comedy right yeah. so even when it's a comedy it's not necessarily um just for laughs like just yeah. to point and say oh look at that guy in drag it's yeah. it's something it, it can be something bigger yeah. right whether that's shakespeare's intent or not is a question for the guy with the time machine that can go back and ask <laughs> shakespeare himself um but it's it's interesting to think about. Yeah, and, and I think it it leads into our next point, which is that that human beings are flawed as a general yes. as a general idea. I think that's present across all the plays. I think there's very few. Oh well, there's lots of stock characters in Shakespeare sure. for sure. But um, any character that gets a bit of nuance, you you kind of see the imperfections of all of them. Even yeah. Henry V, especially, is probably his most perfect of creations. Um, <laughs> is is a little flawed and a little questioning and mm-hmm. uncertain and uh, not sure of his own moral righteousness. Um, despite I think Shakespeare wanting him to be the most morally righteous character. Yeah. Um, and that's just something that, you know, we take for granted now, but uh, it's, it is, it, it is a layer of characterization and, and an expression of reality and mm-hmm. uh, empathy again, that, 
we take for granted now as part of the English canon. But I, I don't think like reading. Yes, it was in it was in uh, Chaucer and stuff. He had he had rounded characters and, and ideas there, too. But a lot of them, you know, they're the knight's yeah. tale. It's the wife of ba- like they're, yeah. they're not they're not fully they don't have the internal monologues. Dynamism and, and di- that. Yeah. that uh, yeah, that the, Shakespeare's characters have. Yeah, that you really get. And and you had it in his his poetry as well, mm-hmm. like uh, in Venus and Venus Adonis. Venus and Adonis and, and... The Rape of uh, Lucrece, especially. Yeah. There's some great character yeah, developments. Like, and it's all there. just in, in their heads and yeah. creating that space within the language to express that and to have conflicting emotions and uncertainties and stuff like that. Is, right. Is, um, it's not super political, but uh, it does contribute to an understanding that people are flawed. Well, and 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 when you understand that people are flawed, you are more forgiving of the the f- things that they do wrong. Mm-hmm. And when Shakespeare is forgiving of those characters, for example, of Leonidas in The Winter's Tale, um, it's a beautiful thing to yeah. or Cymbeline, right? Where there's forgiveness being given yeah. at the end of the play for those flaws. It's it's a much more realistic portrait of humanity. Yeah. Um, when those characters are not forgiven for their flaws, Othello, uh, Lear, mm. um, Hamlet, these are characters who who manifest great suffering as a result of those flaws. They're, I don't want to say they're... Well, they are punished for their flaws, but there's still a recognition that it's what makes them human. Yeah, th- right? there's, there's an ability to sit in that uneasiness and in those flaws and explore them and so it's not it's not like a a stock character who's evil for the sake of being evil who we wouldn't call it a flaw when someone you know um when a stock evil character kills the you know Whatever, when Grendel kills half of the the folks at Herod, Lindsay, you, you know. the obvious choice. When Thanos snaps no, half the No, I was going to Thanos going because okay. Thanos <laughs> is, is, and I haven't seen the film, but I've talked about it enough with my eighth graders to know that Thanos is a very complex character. And you can see yeah. it, for, he's flawed, and, and you can see it from his point of view, and you can understand where he's coming from. And I think that's where, you know, the great villains of Shakespeare, Lady Macbeth, um, Claudius to a certain degree, yeah, a in, little a bit, in a weird way. Um, uh, Richard the Third, Richard the Third, yeah. like you can see why they're doing the things they're doing, and and as soon as you can, if you can write a story from their point of view and sympathize with them, yeah, where they're the hero, yeah, yeah, like that, that signals that that there's humanity has been given to them and it's it's there it's in the original text Mm -hmm. you can extrapolate from that and have them be the hero of their own story you can do that with thanos you can do that with richard the third you you could conceivably turn those stories around Mm -hmm. and make them the heroes well sensibly shakespeare did with richard the third but we won't get into that. We will not get into that despite his being a tragic hero uh so the next (laughs) related to and we've already actually covered most of this one but um the, the fact that people give legitimacy to power and that also people are easily swayed and should be trusted. I think yeah. this is something that, that Shakespeare is very concerned with. And it's it's something in our QAnon era is yeah. worth is worth considering, too. You know, you want to be able to trust uh, a republic and the people who make it up. But again, 70 million of them just voted for Donald Trump yeah. and they almost uh, gave him power him. again, you know, and it's like... 
this is this is what was concerning uh, Cassius and Brutus, you know? Like, can you save a republic that doesn't want to be saved? Can, well, you, can you save the people from themselves? And, and I think um, if Cassius and Brutus were here today, um, they would they would see the problem in um, social media. They would see the problem in an uninformed electorate, I think, is the biggest threat to democracies everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's something that... Um, Without intending this, this was definitely not something that Shakespeare was was even thinking about. But it certainly feels like um, it's a it's a consequence of what he what he's written. The uneducated groundlings are the biggest threat to a republic, yeah. and he didn't even know what a republic was yeah. really. Yeah. He didn't live in one. Yeah. He the England wasn't going to be one for another. 100 years 60 years maybe yeah you know like it just wasn't gonna happen yet right no more than that they've never i mean they're constitutional i know i know yeah okay but but i mean if you want to talk about with the power being with the people when did that happen for well it was it was a gradual process so yeah Yeah, okay but i mean mean, yeah the french revolution happens in the late 1700s you have the american revolution you have the establishment of of other democracies yeah Yeah, exactly so i mean these things were coming but they were quite a long ways away and already there's that i keep using that word anxiety but it is it's it's an anxiety about um about the people and and we can look at this and say well it's definitely uneducated or um and i'm not saying they're stupid but i'm just saying they're they're afraid Mm -hmm. and they want you know QAnon supporters and supporters of donald trump are afraid of the things that they're seeing and they don't know how to get control of their lives so they cling to their facebook groups and the things that they read on fox news and breitbart and you know and that's what informs their worldview and it's not truth yeah and so yeah when brutus and cassius you know transform into 2020 um political pundits they would be terrified of what yeah. they're seeing right now and i think we should be too and that's something that we need to um get a hold of i think or else you know yes joe biden was elected but it wasn't the landslide that it should have been and and that should be worrying to to you know democracies everywhere yeah. another big theme i think uh that comes up again and again in shakespeare is uh, a kind of a sense of personal responsibility and uh the the justice meeting out uh to match the actions of of the various characters and that's obviously it's kind of a a deus ex machina approach in a lot of shakespeare's plays where there's a wedding to wrap up everybody who's been good and there's you know the the titular uh tragic character dies at the Mm -hmm. end because he's he usually almost always he except for juliet i guess uh has made some sort of mistake and has gone outside the norms of of society um but there's also like um, there's interesting nuances in there. Like I, when Lindsay mentioned this this theme, I was like, "Oh, uh, Merry Wives of Windsor," because uh, you know it's it's a lighthearted approach to personal responsibility. Everybody who's yeah. kind of dumb and untrustworthy there gets done punished. something wrong. Yeah. yeah, they get punished, but it's in not a lighthearted way. Lighthearted like they're way. made fun of. Yeah, and because they're. they're transgressions are, are minimal yeah it's it's i don't trust my wife yeah but then oh well i get made fun of and, yeah. and everybody sees that i'm an idiot uh and it's false staff trying to sleep with everyone and then he gets the whole town comes together to ridicule him yeah. for trying to do this yeah um you know it's it's this sense of um 
the 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 punishment kind of has to to match the crime to right. a certain extent. I think there's there's a there's a certain uh, there's a certain appropriateness to that mm-hmm. that still mm-hmm. rings true in in some respect. Um, you could look at Melville, you know, even and be like, yeah, because he was he was so silly and and dumb and he just didn't understand anything that he gets made fun of. I think it goes a little too far, yes. but uh, you could just read it as as a good time. But you flip that to someone like Antonio and Shylock, who mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, the personal responsibility in that play. Antonio plays fast and loose with his yeah, cash with his and and has to pay a price for it. And Shylock's arrogance um, yeah. enables his um, well, his downfall, right? Yeah. And then and and where where is the personal responsibility? Um, in that play, right? Yeah. It really, the punishments don't fit the crimes. I think the wrong people are lauded at the end of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and but it makes sense to Shakespeare's time, and I think it does. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the most interesting plays that way, is because it is it's something that doesn't feel right to us in this yeah. day and age, but made everybody would have left the globe thinking like, oh, that was a great play that everybody got what they deserved, and everybody's right. it was a very happy ending. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting for, I think it's still a good play for high school students and stuff to read, to read, to understand those, those competing dynamics of our morality versus the morality of Shakespeare. Yeah. If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. So this week's ancient bickerings, I got to stop saying week. It's episode. We don't do weekly episodes. Bi-weekly. Fortnightly. This fortnight. This fortnight leads. Not the game. Nope. Uh, ancient bickerings (laughs) is... What play would Shakespeare and the King's Men put on today to mark 2020? Yeah, I like this question because uh, Shakespeare and his and his men would were you know tools of the political realm. Mm-hmm. They were contracted to put on King John. Was it was it King John? Yeah, or, before yeah. the assassination, attempted assassination yeah. of the Queen, yeah. um, Macbeth, and right, yeah. and the political ramifications yeah. of the gunpowder plot, perhaps, and and the ascendancy of James the First. I mean, they were tools of of a kind of of the state, of the political state at the yeah. time. So, if they were around today, yeah, what would they? You know, in a socially distanced kind of globe <laughs> theater, where would they? What would they? What play would they put on? Um, I have no idea yet. I have kind of an idea. So, and you, you have okay, a, well, an answer. So, my, my obvious answer was what we talked about last week was Julius Caesar. Oh, just yeah, so okay. apropos. Yeah. Um, I, I think your point of them being agents of the state is a good one, though, because I don't think that would be Boris Johnson's uh, choice of play to summarize <laughs> this year. Uh, but if uh, Shakespeare himself was to choose one, uh, with all the context, and if he'd if he'd grown up. With the cultural context that you and I did, Lindsay, yes. if he was born in Canada in 1985 and grew up in this day and age mm-hmm. uh, again, and he was then seeing which of his own plays uh, to select this year, I'm pretty sure Julius Caesar would, would stay out because okay. it's 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 about the fall of a republic. It's about a dictator in the making mm. and an attempt to resuscitate um, that that political structure. I think it's just it's a little too on the nose. But I'm a very on-the-nose kind of guy when it comes to this stuff. So okay. I'm going to go with, with the big JC, uh, Mr. Caesarian himself. <laughs> By the way, he had a daughter named Caesarian. Really? I think so. I looked up more of after we uh, recorded our episode last week. He had a... And, and Octavius, by the way, was his uh, great nephew, actually. And then he adopted him as his son. 
Just wow, that just there. throwing that out there. Yeah, yeah. Does that have anything to do with not with right now? Why but we just, but last episode we discussed yeah, okay. that, and you were like, uh, "What? He was related?" So I'm oh, just, I'm did, just bringing it up. Yeah, just I did. A, I did. Just a dump Feel, it feels like it was more. a long time ago. Everything this year feels like a long time ago. <laughs> That's a very good point. It Lindsay. is. It is. So, do you have one now? Uh, yeah, I have two. I have two. That's I think not a it fair would, answer, but okay. no, it is. It is a fair answer because one of them is a is a tragedy, and one of them is a comedy. So okay, I think so it would be a double bill. It okay. would be a double bill. All right. Um, I think you could go with uh, with any of the history plays. I think would fit very well with the current political climate in which we live. But but Richard the Third really does seem like the the pinnacle of evil in. Incarnate yeah, in the histories, in the histories, and and within the the powerful realm of um, of politics, um, it just seems very fitting uh, to to discuss the death of that particular king who did overreach and and took power and tried to consolidate power in such a ham-fisted way, um, marrying his niece and or trying to and killing his nephews. And it just seemed like he was he was under no obligation to um, to be fair or to uh be generous or be even-handed at all and 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 uh and overreached and eventually led to his own downfall and i think that is something that i hope <laughs> my fervent hope is that we will see um this happen all over the world to <laughs> the right wing um dictators and dictators or dictators in waiting yeah. um as they tumble from from grace uh, use that very very ironically All right, that's fair um the the afternoon uh or evening <laughs> comedy that would be on this bill i think yeah. has to be midsummer night's dream simply because it would be nice to wake up from this nightmare <laughs> with puck saying you know if we if offended, we shadows <laughs> have offended think but this and all is mended that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear um it would be nice that would be very nice to just you know right. sleep through the rest of whatever is waiting for us and and come out the other end it's true. so it's, this year's not over yet it, i know there's it's... two more episodes in the season than is 2020 and the writers seem to be pulling out all the stops now so i'm waiting for the big finale yeah um yeah, murder hornets are they coming back i don't know if you're listening in the future you know you can let us know leave us a uh, comment from your bunkers <laughs> because i have no hope left for this year i have a little bit of hope left for this year i, I got a little I, more today I, i'll say that i definitely we put up our christmas lights i think we're putting up the christmas tree soon soon so i mean that's that's a positive thing right yeah it could be worse Shit, why did I say that? Now I've cursed it. <laughs> it's going to get worse. Thanks, Liz. Oh, my God. What's next on our docket, Aiden? Next up, As You Like It, um, another fun play. Always, it's going to be good. I, Forest of Arden. Forest of Arden. Music. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good one. So good, we're looking play. forward to that. Um, and then speaking of cultural weight and momentum shakespeare and the english language yeah oh i forgot that was next. yeah so i mean that's i mean i think we can talk about that for we hours. wouldn't even need to research yeah it. i don't think much i mean we will we probably. will obviously but not you, much you listeners i was going to call you viewers but you <laughs> listeners deserve the best or at least us you deserve us <laughs> um and yeah so that'll be fun and then after that Lindsay, near the end of the year scheduled currently uh hamlet 
is, the is next Hamlet one. our Christmas? Hamlet's gonna like be our Christmas yeah, oh, era. Okay, thing. so All right. that should be a lot of fun. Yeah, um, yeah, it'll be a good couple of weeks here. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.